and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Uh, tonight I, I would like to talk a little bit about the practice of ethical conduct. I don't know why, but I just thought that would be maybe a good, a good topic. And uh, I want to talk about uh, the, the Buddhist uh, view, uh, at least as far as I understand it from my own practice. Uh, the, the Buddhist uh, view of how we practice ethical conduct in the context of the bodhisattva path. So I've been talking about uh, these uh, topics uh, for a while, so I have to a little bit give some background to, to put the practice of ethical, con- uh, ethical conduct in a context for you. So I need to just uh, say a few words about what is a bodhisattva. Because it's too loud. Yeah. Okay, so turn it down a little bit. So, so what I'll do is uh, we'll turn the volume down, but I'll use my voice a little more loudly. Okay? How, how are we doing? Can you hear that? But you don't have any feedback. Okay. Okay. So anyway, uh, the first thing, uh, uh, what is a bodhisattva in the Mahayana Buddhist path? What is a bodhisattva? The word, the word bodhisattva means, literally means, um, the word bodhi means uh, to awaken, to wake up, and sattva means a being. So a bodhisattva is, a, is a, an awakening being, a being who is bent on awakening. Really, really has an enthusiasm for and a tremendous vision for what it would be like to wake up to human life as it actually is. So that's what a bodhisattva is. And bodhisattvas are really enthusiastic about this prospect of waking up to human life as it really is. And they're naively enthusiastic. You know, they just go on and they pursue this path uh, no matter what. All kinds of, uh, you know, troubles befall them, the kind of troubles that you and I would say, oh, boy, this is too hard, forget this, this is no good. Bodhisattvas, it doesn't bother them a bit. You know, they just keep going. They, they, in fact, they think, this is great, you know, look at all these hardships, terrific. Let's go forward. More hardships, more power, more practice, good, you know. That's a kind of attitude of bodhisattvas. And uh, the other thing about bodhisattvas is that, is that they have... Uh, at some point in their bodhisattva careers, <laughs> they, they uh, have um, experienced something called bodhicitta, which means thought of awakening, or inspiration, or spirit of awakening. So this, it's as if, you know, they're born again, you know? This, this spirit comes on them for awakening. And, but the thing about the bodhicitta that you have to appreciate is that it's essentially an altruistic thought. In other words, the bodhisattvas realize that the only way 
that they could wake up to human life as it really is, is by doing this not alone and for themselves, but only in concert with everyone else. So bodhisattvas are very enthusiastic about benefiting others. They see this as a key path for them. The only path possible would be the path of awakening oneself in the spirit of benefiting others. So this enthusiastic, endless effort, along with a powerful altruistic motivation, are the things that characterize bodhisattvas. And in Mahayana Buddhism, we all aspire to be bodhisattvas. This is a kind of a, a goal and a vision that we all work toward, to awaken the bodhisattva spirit and to awaken the bodhicitta, this thought of uh, awakening altruistically for other people, to practice you know, compassion, loving kindness, and, and always trying to benefit other people with, without limit. This is the bodhisattva spirit. So the practice of bodhisattvas, there are many different uh, ways of looking at the bodhisattva path, of delineating the bodhisattva practice, but the way that I would like to mention tonight is called the path of the six paramitas, the six perfections, or the six um, going beyond. Literally, the word paramita means to go beyond. So the six going beyond practices. And, and the bodhisattvas work on these six practices very hard, you know, on and on and on. Bodhisattvas don't expect to complete the task of benefiting an infinite number of beings and achieving enlightenment equal to a Buddha. They don't expect to, to complete this task in a few years because it's a big job. So they expect that they're going to keep going on and on and on with this for a very, very long time. Uh, some of the texts have figures like, I think it's uh, uh, 10 to the 26th power lifetimes <laughs> would be about how long it would take to, uh, to complete this job. So by definition, the bodhisattvas are, are always working on it. You see, they're not planning anytime soon to achieve the end point. So that, in a way, you could say that the practice of bodhisattvas is the practice of imperfection. Going on and on and on with imperfection, but with a good heart and an altruistic spirit to benefit others. So those of you who have perfectionistic tendencies, take heart. This is a good path for you. This will cure you of any illusions that you may have that you could do Buddhism right and therefore, you know, complete the course and go on to other things in life. This idea of the Bodhisattva path completely disabuses you of any such notions. And, and validates your imperfectibility to the max. <laughs> so this is uh, the way of the Bodhisattva. And the six, the six gone beyond practices, or the, the six perfections, are, first, you could imagine what the first one would be, giving, generosity. It's the first practice. And the second one is the one that I want to talk about tonight, uh, ethical conduct. The third is energy, 
or strength, power. And the fourth is patience, forbearance. The fifth is meditation or the ability to uh, develop uh, the mind, concentrate the mind. And the sixth is, is the most important one of all. It's called prajna or wisdom. And uh, prajna here doesn't just mean, as we would usually conventionally use the word wisdom, like you know, some wise person who you know, always knows what to do, something like that. Here it means, more specifically, the wisdom to see the world as it really is and to recognize and understand that there are no isolated, separate beings. And that's why the altruism of the bodhisattvas is so powerful and so thoroughgoing. Because bodhisattvas are not not just nice guys. I'll be nice. You know, because it's good to be nice. Bodhisattvas realize that being nice is reality. Being kind, being unselfish, is not just something one decides to do to be nice, but in fact it is the nature of reality. And the eye that sees that and knows that for sure, so that altruism is not just a thought, but it's a vision, is the eye of wisdom, prajna paramita. And the other five perfections, in a way, deepen and lead to the arising of the prajna paramita, the, the wisdom that sees our interconnected nature. So that's the context in which we, we have the practice of ethical conduct. Now, uh, I also have to say, before I can get to that, I also have to say a little bit uh, also about giving, because these six perfections, these six practices, all kind of relate to one another. They're one whole. And so uh, if, if we discuss them, uh, maybe we'll discuss them in order. And so in order to appreciate the nature of the practice of ethical conduct, it's important to understand the nature of the practice of generosity. So, but that's not really my topic for tonight, so I'll briefly say just enough about generosity so that you can see its connection to ethical conduct. We're still being heard, yes? Without feedback, yes? Ah, good, okay. What? I I didn't hear you. Perfection. Perfection, yes, excellent. Temporarily. Um, so we all know what giving is. You know, give someone something on their birthday. Somebody needs money, you give them money. That, that much we all understand. But then beyond that, there's giving someone teachings, giving someone love, giving someone kindness, giving someone your full attention, your full presence. Then there's giving someone the greatest gift of all, which is the gift of fearlessness. Letting the person know, maybe not in words, but by the quality of your presence, that you understand that that person really is a Buddha, as we all are, and that you see that in them 
even if they don't see it themselves, and they feel you're seeing that. This is a beautiful gift that we can receive. Giving really means completely being present with your whole life on every moment. In other words, saying yes to every moment of your life. That means the moments you like and the moments you don't like. Whenever something appears in life, yes, I give myself completely to this moment. So we can practice giving on our meditation cushions. Could you really give yourself 100% to every breath that comes? So that there's nothing held back, there's nothing uh, in reserve, you know? You just breathe that one breath as if it were the only thing in the universe. What would that feel like to practice giving that way? To give yourself to yourself freely. To give your own life to yourself freely and to give that life to others. These are also the practice of giving. We don't usually think of these things, but actually, fundamentally, this is the practice of giving. And if you, and if you give someone food or money, thinking, this poor unfortunate soul, I'm now going to give them some money, actually, this wouldn't really be the practice of giving. It would be a beginning, you know, but it wouldn't really be the practice of giving if you didn't give with that spirit of completely surrendering, completely being present, completely being, letting in that person and that situation completely into your life and saying yes to it. So the practice of giving, the practice of generosity, is something very thoroughgoing and very expansive, almost like nature itself. You could look at the trees and the sky and you say, there's the practice of giving. When's the last time you saw the sky say, well, maybe... You never see that. The sky completely gives itself, you know, on every occasion, right? A tree completely exercises the life of a tree without stint, you know? Now, actually, you could say that the practice of giving is like nature, a wildness. And we have that wildness in ourselves, that sense of abundance in ourselves. Because we're, we're really not so different from a tree or a cloud. Because we share something with a tree or a cloud, that is the most salient feature about a tree, a cloud, or, or ourselves, and that is that we are. We're in existence. There's a big difference between something that's in existence and something that doesn't exist, right? This is the biggest difference that there is, right? Much bigger than the difference between you and I and a tree. No? So in this way, we have within us the same wildness, the same abundance, the same capacity for complete generosity that nature has within it. So giving is that kind of a thing, that kind of wild fertility and abundance that's a potential in, in every one of us, all throughout our lives, from the first breath until the last. So that's the practice of giving. And the reason I have to say all that is because the practice of ethical conduct is the balance, you see, to the practice of giving. Because sometimes with our wildness, and nature, for instance, is wild, and sometimes it sends giant tidal waves and destroys things. So, the balance to the practice of giving in the human world is the practice of ethical conduct. If, if the wildness in us is the practice of giving, then the civilization in us 
is the practice of ethical conduct. Ethical conduct really is the practice of restraint, of limitation. You see how it balances the practice of giving. And we need, this is what we need, the right balance. Not to practice ethical conduct to the point where we can no longer give because we're so worried about every little thing that we're doing, too limited. But on the other hand, not to be so wild that our <coughs> generosity ends up being harmful. So finding the right balance of limitation and restraint and wildness. So if the practice of giving is warm, energetic, full of activity, full of motion, the practice of ethical conduct is the practice of stillness, quiet, restraint, carefulness. In, in Sanskrit, the practice of ethical conduct is called shila, shila paramita. So shila is like cleaning your room, you know? You get expansive and your room gets messy. So you have to have uh, Shila Paramita to clean up. And, and Shila Paramita, with Shila Paramita, we clean up our whole life and we hope our whole world. And we make the world uh, a beautiful place, a peaceful, quiet place. As we all probably know, uh, life can be pretty messy. You know, one's own life can be pretty messy if there's not good practice of Shila. And the world uh, in which uh, I would say the practice of Shila is, is not that strong, in the world at large, the world can be pretty messy as a result of that. And when our life is messy, or when the world is messy, just like when your room is messy, you get, you, you get nervous. You don't like that. It doesn't settle you inside. And, and that nervousness usually leads to more messes and, and more trouble. So we have to practice Shila Paramita, ethical conduct to help us balance uh, the wildness of giving and to make things clearer and calmer and more beautiful in this world and in our lives. So what we would call then unethical actions or, or bad actions are those actions that come from the confused and distorted mind and heart. And let's be honest, who doesn't have to some extent or another, a confused and distorted mind and heart. After all, you know, we aren't yet, we haven't gone through those 10 to the 26th power <laughs> lifetimes. So we're not quite perfect yet. So we have to admit all of us have some degree of confused or distorted minds and hearts. So the practice of Shila actually is to recognize, to recognize that and pay attention to it and be honest about it and be clear about it and look and see what really happens, what our mind and our heart are really like. To know our actual condition, to know our own actions. And actions means body, speech, and mind. The things we think, the things we say, and the things we do. Can we really pay attention, honestly, to what happens when we think this way or that way, when we do this or that, when we speak in this way or in that way? You know, in, in, in Buddha Dharma, there's no good and bad. There's only good. 
Uh, I'm, I'm a, a student uh, of the Bible, you know, I find the Bible very fascinating. And when I read in the Bible, you know, that it says uh, in the beginning, you know, God created the world. And it says, and God created this, and God created that, and so on. And at the end of every one, it says, and God said it was good. Remember that part of your Bible? God said it was good. So I thought to myself, you know, why did God say that? Like, God did this. God, God could have made a mistake and made it wrong. No, I don't think when God said in the Bible, it is good, that God meant it could have been bad, but thank God it was good. I don't think it means that. I think what it means is, when God says in the Bible, it is good, what God means by that is, it is. Before it wasn't, you see, and now it is. That's what it means when it says it is good. It doesn't mean good like good and bad. It means absolutely good. It is. And this is why uh, trees and raccoons and house cats and lions and tigers don't have to practice Sheila. Because they are already good and what they do is good, absolutely good. We have a problem, though, <laughs> because we have a mind that can discriminate good and bad. So we have to practice Sheila, because unlike a house cat, we can do something bad. And, and we have to not do that, because when we do something bad, something unethical, something harmful, we create a distorted mess of our own lives and of the lives around us. We too, like the house cat, are absolutely good. But because we have this capacity to discriminate between good and bad, we have the obligation and the responsibility to do what's good and to restrain ourselves from doing what's harmful to self or other. So this is our big problem and our big challenge as human beings. It's our unique challenge and our unique opportunity. There's a big opportunity for us in this and a big consequence if we don't pay attention to it. We have the chance, as no other creature does, to, by our choice and by our actions, make a beautiful life for ourselves and a beautiful world. We can take that opportunity or we can blow it. In Buddhism, the mental states that produce unethical conduct, you know, bad actions and thoughts and speech and therefore messes, these uh, mental states are called in Buddhism kleshas. And the word klesha literally means to cover, a covering. What this says is that badness unethicalness, evil, is not something fundamental to us. Badness is what happens when our absolute goodness gets covered over. And it can get covered over. And we can have a very strong habit of very negative actions, harmful to ourselves and others. We can have a really powerful habit of that. But the point is, it's a covering over our absolute goodness. The covering can be quite thick, 
And it can take quite a bit of effort to uncover. And maybe we never uncover. But the point is, it's not fundamental to us. Our fundamental nature <coughs> is absolute goodness. So badness is definitely a problem. I don't say it's not a problem. But it's not a fundamental problem. And there aren't any bad people. There are only people whose goodness has been covered over. And, to some extent, we're all like that, right? We all have kleshas. We all have thought and heart coverings. So we ought to be able to have sympathy for the person who has very strong, thick coverings. Because we ourselves have some coverings, however strong or thick they may be. And our practice and our responsibility and our opportunity and our gift as human beings is to be able to walk the path of uncovering our real hearts and our real lives. And that's the bodhisattva path, to uncover what we really are. So how do we practice ethical conduct? Well, the first thing to do is just pay attention with honesty to what happens. What do we think? What do we say? What do we do? And how do those thoughts and words and deeds make us feel? And this is one reason why I think sitting practice is so important. Because I have noticed, and maybe you have too, how powerful is the human capacity for self-deception. It's very easy to think you know what's going on <laughs> and to be fooling yourself. It's really easy. When you practice meditation on a regular basis, this becomes more difficult. Self-deception becomes more difficult. You begin to notice how it is with you. Harder to fool yourself. In a way, meditation practice is just the practice of being aware of what's going on with you. Nothing else is happening. You're just sitting there and you can't help but notice your thoughts. Eh? And how where they come from, and what, they, what their consequences are. This is fundamental to the practice of Shila. To look and see what's really going on. To observe our mind and our heart. To see what's it like when we speak kindly, lovingly. How do we feel when we speak in a mean-spirited way? And we get to see how it is that when our actions and our words are mean-spirited, other people suffer, and we suffer too. This doesn't make, it, might make us happy. We see how twisted we get inside. And the more we see this, the more we don't want to do it. It's not that we have to restrain ourselves. Oh, I'm dying to chew her out, but I'm going to stop myself. Maybe at first it might be like that. But after a while, it's like, I don't want to do that. Because I know what that feels like inside. And I know how I feel when I see her face after I've yelled at her. And I just don't want to do that. I mean, I did it all the time before, but I don't, now, I, now it just doesn't feel like I want to do that anymore, like I can do that. 
So that's really, in a way, the simplest and most important aspect of the practice of ethical conduct is to pay attention with the eyes open and the heart open to what it's really like. And you find that you naturally want to practice kindness and goodness, not as some sort of phony thing that somebody told you you're supposed to be doing and feeling, but because that feels human, that feels right. And not to live and practice in that way feels twisted, dangerous, and unhappy. And, and nobody wants to, on purpose, you know, choose to be twisted, dangerous, and unhappy. So our, by paying attention, automatically we train ourselves in kindness and goodness. So that's one side. And the other side is that we make intentional efforts to develop positive uh, thoughts, words, and, and deeds. So we practice giving. We try to cultivate this bodhicitta, this altruistic thought of awakening. Actually, when you think about it, all the practices that are done in all the religions of the world are for the purpose of cultivating and conditioning our mind to goodness. If we pray, if we you know, make prostrations or offerings, uh, you know, if we um, study sacred texts, all of this uh, is for the purpose of strengthening uh, our habit of goodness. In, in Zen, we have uh, what we call 16 bodhisattva precepts. And, and these we view as meditation tools to help us work with our conduct and to strengthen our goodness. So that's the practice of ethical conduct. Now, when you practice ethical conduct, you will notice very quickly that it's not perfect. That there's always mistakes. And this seems to be part of the process. This seems to be how we learn, is exactly by making mistakes. So bodhisattvas who practice the six paramitas every now and then mess up. And when we mess up and we become aware of the mess and we forgive ourselves for it, we forgive others if they're the ones who made the mess. When that happens, in other words, when, when there's a mistake and we actually honestly stop defending ourselves and running away from our mistakes, but actually admit them and forgive ourselves and others for them, we learn something really amazing. Something that we could not learn in any other way. We learn that messing up brings us closer together. You know, if I hurt you somehow, and I know, and I see that I've done that, and I really am regretful, and I make amends, and I really and truly and sincerely apologize in a way that you hear me, and you realize that I mean it, then we become closer to one another than we ever would have been otherwise. Isn't that so? You know that. So that's why 
we don't have to be so afraid of our mistakes. We don't have to practice ethical conduct in, with a feeling of quaking in our boots. Because we know we're going to make mistakes. And we know that if we turn toward our mistakes with honesty, there'll be benefit in our very mistakes. You always make mistakes. And the mistakes are good when you own them and when you truly practice with them. So in this, a very important idea here is the idea of practicing forgiveness. And this is part of, therefore, you know, because of the inevitability of mistakes, the practice of forgiveness is a really important part of the practice of ethical conduct. And the practice of forgiveness is very subtle and very sophisticated. And I think most of us kind of don't see how to do that practice. The thing about, you know, doing bad, so-called bad things or unethical things is that the definition of that is that someone is being hurt. Someone is being caused to suffer. If we're the ones who are being caused to suffer by the actions of another, we might have a hard time forgiving that other person because we think, yeah, he did that to me, that rotten person. Why am I going to forgive him? If I forgive him, it justifies, condones his actions. So I'm not going to forgive He did this to me. He said that to me. That was terrible. No way I'm going to forgive him. You know, and condone what he said. A lot of times we feel this same way about ourselves. I think, actually, a lot of people have grudges against themselves. Just the same way you'd have a grudge against somebody who did something bad to you and you're not going to forgive them, you know, because why should you forgive them? We do the same thing to ourselves, I think, without knowing that we're doing it. So we, ha- we have this feeling that, you know, we're not going to forgive. Because somehow forgiving feels like giving in. You know? It's this crazy thing with ourselves. It feels like um, we don't want to forgive ourselves for our shortcomings for fear that if we forgave ourselves for our shortcomings, we would be validating our shortcomings and we would be giving up our dream of perfection. You know? I mean, this is very crazy, but common. <laughs> crazy, by the way, is common as we all know. Normal is almost unheard of. <laughs> crazy is common. So we do these crazy things to ourselves. We, ha- we, be- we become unforgiving toward ourselves. Then there's the opposite point of view. We, we think, I'm forgiving. I'm going to forgive everything and everybody. I'm going to be just like Jesus, who forgives everything. Then we think, but you know what? I have to admit I can't do it. I should be able to do that, but I'm not able to do it. Whoops. Then we get mad at ourselves for our lack of our ability to forgive, which we think we should be doing, forgiving, the other extreme. But if we could actually forgive the way that Jesus forgave, maybe we would only be kidding ourselves. And I think there are people who are very, very forgiving. And possibly they're kidding themselves. Because actually they're not Jesus. They're themselves. 
<laughs> and maybe we would be letting ourselves or the other person off the hook a little bit too easily if we had this magnanimous capacity to forgive. If we were Jesus or God or Buddha, maybe then, but we're not. You know? So let's be realistic. So how do you practice forgiveness, avoiding these extremes? Well, as always, you know, the most important thing is pay attention. Be honest. Be realistic. Our practice never rests on the ground of what should be. This is very shaky ground. Our practice always rests on the ground of what is. Whether we like it or not, whether we think it's good or not, it's the only foundation for practice, is what is, not what should be. So we pay attention, what is, inside and out. And by following what is, we find our way. So we notice how unwilling we are to forgive. We notice how hard our heart is. We see our own bitterness, our hurt, and our dismay. We know, I don't want to forgive myself. I don't want to forgive him or her. And people, you know, go for lifetimes not forgiving people, maybe who died a long time ago. And this becomes a kind of cornerstone of a life. Think about it. It happens all the time. So we have to start looking at those things and really being honest about them. And we, if we are, we'll see, wow, that is so painful. I am suffering so much from my lack of an ability to forgive. And we see, you know, little by little, how much that unforgiving quality is hurting us, how painful that is. And we're the only ones being hurt. You know, the person that we're not forgiving could care less, you know. She's going along having a great time, un unknowing that we're sitting here full of bitterness and pain. But we feel it. It's very uncomfortable to feel this. Anger seems better, you know. When we let go of the anger, we see our own pain. It's hard. But if we fully take it in, it changes us. And eventually, through the path of being honest about our own hurt and pain, we will come to see why that thing that hurt us so much was done. Why did he do that? Why did she do that? We begin, begin to understand what happened. And we, we stop thinking that he's bad or she's bad or I'm bad. Or even we stop thinking, she did something bad to me, he did something bad to me. Instead, we begin to understand why this happened. We begin to understand the causes and the conditions that produced these actions. Almost as if these causes and conditions were using the person as a conduit for those causes and conditions to flow into the world in, in, in evil actions. We understand that. And we have less blame and less anger and our pain when we understand that little by little decreases. And then we have some sympathy and some sorrow for the person that we're angry at. Sometimes it's ourselves, sometimes it's someone else. 
And then, based on that sympathetic understanding, we will really be able to forgive. Not in some fake way, like we're supposed to forgive, but in a real way. Knowing that it's clear that bad actions are bad actions and that they have consequences, but without anger, without bitterness. Once we understand our own hearts and minds and we understand uh, what the kleshas are and how they're formed within us, we understand that we're all in the same boat in this world. We're all perpetrators and we're all victims. And when we, when we see this, uh, the whole world looks different and the way we live in it is quite different. So the strongest antidote to our bad conduct, our lack of good ethics, is first of all our constant cultivation of an altruistic intention, our understanding that there's no way that we could be ourselves without everyone else being who they are. There's no me without you. Understanding that and having an altruistic intention is the first antidote to bad ethical conduct. And the second is understanding reality and opening up our eyes. And then uh, this practice of Shila does not become a matter of our need to restrain ourselves and stop having fun in life or, or to feel like some, some big guy is looking out a- after us and going to punish us if we me- make a mess. But rather, the practice of Shila becomes a vehicle for our love, for our way, the way we share life with one another. It becomes really something beautiful and, so, and so a great source of, of happiness. It's wonderful, you know, to feel that we can be clear in our thinking, in our speaking, and in our acting, that we don't need to be tempted, you know, to, to harm other people. We don't need to stop ourselves from that because we just don't want to do it. So, so in a way, you could, you could say, in the end, there's no such thing as Srila Paramita. That's why Paramita means to go beyond. You see? In the end, there's no such thing as Srila Paramita. There's no such thing as ethical conduct. There's just living <coughs> with a good heart. That's all the ethical conduct that we need. It may take a little training along the way, you know, to get there. But in the end, that's how, it, that's how it, the, the practice of Srila sort of dissolves in thin air. And there's just life, just living. I think that's about it. I think that's what I wanted to tell you. So I think we have some time for uh, discussion. We always have some fun discussions. So if you have any, anything to bring up, please uh, speak up. We have about, I think, 15 minutes. Yeah. Well, intention is very important, of course. The intention to practice Shila, the intention to cultivate the altruistic motivation, the intention to pay attention to our own lives, 
So absolutely, intention is at the heart of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, it has to do with the power of the individual versus the power of the institution. Mm -hmm. And um, we live in an HMO world. And that HMO concept applies to uh, health care and um, even the concept of customer service and corporate mergers. So when you um, describe how an individual should or how an individual can behave in a society. This is more the, the, or what I take away from it is that when I'm interacting <coughs> with another individual, I can put my intention in and really make more of an effort in many ways, ethical conduct among <coughs> them. But when I deal with institutions which are not giving me that ethical conduct, that you know, when I'm on the phone for 15 minutes waiting for somebody in tech support to answer my question, and I know that they are not practicing the same level of ethical conduct, that's where, for me, in the society, there is a, or an HMO. That is, for me, a huge disconnect. Mm. How, do you, how do you bring those, that, those two concepts mm. together? And you talk about the reality of living in the world, so that's what I'm mm -hmm. Well, uh, so what, what is an institution? Uh, I suppose an institution is a collection of, of people, buildings, accounting sheets, uh, and, and a set of concepts and understandings. So I think that, uh, you know, we, maybe we need to deconstruct institutions. Now, I mean, I think you're pointing to something very important, that there are forces afoot in the world that are very distorting of, and have a big impact on us and on everybody in, in the world, particularly if you, some institution, people who work there or are part of that institution are very strongly affected by it. Nevertheless, uh, we always have the power and the capacity to take care of, our own, of our, our own mind and heart, regardless of what the circumstances are. We really can't blame the circumstances for our own state of mind. So we do have to be realistic. I mean, I think you, what, you're, what you're doing here is you're pointing out that it, realistically in the world as, as it exists, it's not so simple and so easy to practice ethical conduct. And you're right. It's also not impossible. And it's also absolutely necessary. So exactly because <laughs> there are mega institutions uh, in which decent people don't seem to be in control, we even more need to practice ethical conduct on a person-to-person -person basis and on a global basis. So you're just, what you're saying is simply that it's difficult and it's complicated. And yes, it is. It's difficult and it's complicated, and it's possible, and there's no other way. Because the other way is to throw in the towel and say, well, it's hopeless. That's an action. That's an intention. That is a decision that one makes in the world. That's a decision that none of us can afford to make. We have to practice and take responsibility for our lives, even in the midst of a very difficult situation. I don't see any other any other way. And that's why 
we need, I would say, significant effort and significant support in our spirituality. You're absolutely right. One person by herself, without support, without effort, you know, without guidance and effort in spiritual practices, I'm going to have a pretty tough time making this seem real, you know. But with support and with effort over time, you find that actually the wisdom inside of you is stronger than any institution. Now, the institution can put you in jail, take away all your money, and so on and so forth. It cannot take away your soul and your heart if you practice with all your strength. And, and that's really the truth. So thank you for your, your question, and that's a very important question, especially in, in these times we live in. And I hope that what I say makes some sense to you. Anything else? Mm -hmm. well, a corollary of, of this exchange that just started might be that I could be acting unethically if I don't speak out against some of these institutional injustices or lacks of ethics. Mm -hmm. and, and carried to what seems to be the logical conclusion of what you were saying, it's incumbent upon all of us not to just sit on our cushions, but to engage the, the world and, and try to do something about these, well, the rampant lack of ethics that we see all around us. Yeah, that's right. That's bodhisattva practice, not just for ourselves, but for the benefit of others. That's right. And, and we have to, every one of us has to find a way to uh, practice for ourselves and for everyone else and to take responsibility for what we can do to make uh, the world a more friendly place. It's not easy. But we have 10 to the 26th lifetimes to do it, so actually it's not that much of a problem. <laughs> it's only a problem uh, if you think about your, your lifespan. Then you, you, might, you might be despairing. You might think, oh boy, you know, I'm not going to get very far. But if you think, well, yes, I have to work really hard in this lifetime, but then I have a lot more time. Maybe you can have a good spirit then. Yes. I'd just like to add for this lady the um, power of the intention that you have with your heart about if you're on the phone for 15 minutes waiting and, and you have a choice of whether you can send that person love and recognize them that they're, they're she carries it, mm. simply covering yeah. who they are. Yeah. And to, to actively send that to them so, and bless them because... They're only in that place for a Yeah. And that'll shift the energy. That's right. Yeah. Every, every, every person is just like you. So, yeah, I mean, if I am calling on the phone uh, with tech support person, which I never do, actually. <laughs> but I'm calling somebody on the phone, I guess, or talking to somebody who's part of an institution that I'm dealing with. I always assume that this is a person like me. They, maybe they have children, they have a life, they have sorrows and hopes and fears and so on. I don't see them as a faceless bureaucrat in an institution. It's a person. And life is a lot better when you think that every person is actually a person. It's a lot better. 
when you think that somebody's not really a person, but just a function of an institution, then this is really bad. You, you, you really you don't have a chance to touch one another. All day long, you know, we're, we're connected to each other. And, and why don't we assume the best? It makes a big difference. Just, I mean, I'm just saying in a different way what you, what you have said. Yeah. And, uh, you, know, it, 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 I, you know, it is amazing what happens when you do that. Why? Because everybody's just like you and me. We're all a little bit on the defensive. We're all ready, you know, to be attacked or something. And, and, and as soon as somebody does it, we're right there. We, we're expecting it, yeah, and we're going to go right back, right? Isn't that right? That we're all like that. Because we're all a little bit, you know, afraid in this big, crazy world. But when all of a sudden you don't do that, and you approach somebody assuming that they're a person just like you, and that they have problems too. I mean, you're calling up the tech support person because you have a problem, but they probably have a problem also. The tech support problem person has a problem. They're not getting paid enough. They're, maybe they're having a divorce. Their mother died. You know, they have problems too. And you think, I've got this problem. You're not helping me. Why don't you think, what's your problem? <laughs> yeah, are you all right? I'm serious. When you do that, all of a sudden, just like you, you know yourself, if you're like this and somebody comes up to you like this, you go, Phew. boy, what a relief. What a relief. I don't have to do this anymore. I can just, ah. And then you, something else happens. Test it out. See if I'm right about this. <laughs> Try it. The next time you go to the bank or the gas station or the grocery store and see if it's not true. Turn, you can turn these mundane chores into opportunities for friend, friendliness. And you can make your life a lot more happy. And also the person who's in the checkout counter or behind the glass window of the bank. Well, little by little, little by little, it's a big job. But you have to start somewhere. And I, I don't see any benefit whatsoever in feeling overwhelmed or discouraged. Is that going to help? And, and is that really accurate to the facts of the matter? I don't think so. I think that's a thought that we have. So we need to help each other out here. You know, we need to help each other out and, and, and make sure that we can maintain uh, a hopeful, positive view. Not kidding ourselves in any way about the absolutely disastrous situation we're in. Let's not fool ourselves. Oh, it's, it'll be fine. No, let's not fool ourselves. But also, let's not be discouraged. Let's realize we've got to go on. You've got to live this life, and we have to provide good foundation for the people coming behind us who are going to replace us. And we've got to do that, no matter what the conditions are. Otherwise, you know, we lose humanity. We lose any possibility for goodness in the future. And we need to help each other to maintain that attitude. That's why we come to Spirit Rock, right? to be uplifted a little bit, to hear some dharma that reminds us, yes, this is possible. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. 
a lot of people in the room who also think so, or if they don't think so, they would like to think so. <laughs> so we need each other, and we need to practice together. So thanks for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.